Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Three Musketeers podcast. This is Aiden, and with me are Brandon and Tom, and today we will be taking on the next few chapters of Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Last week, we talked about how war is viewed in society versus in this book, a concept that continues to develop in the following chapters. Today, we will be dissecting what the strange creatures of Trail Famador have to say about war. We will also be looking at the unique attitudes of the English characters and welcome a special guest to discuss how Billy's abnormal mindset relates to the centuries-old novel of Don Quixote. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Abduction. This summer, join Willie in his quest for the truth. Fight off awful CGI aliens to save the human race as Willie embarks on a journey to save his cheesy girlfriend. Play dress-up as you sit in an empty theater to watch a low-budget film. After it ends, you never have to leave this awfully written story with the help of your strange imagination. Who needs friends where you can sit alone in your basement with your cloak in your own little world in which you have all the answers? Don't miss out. Buy tickets now. The Abduction. All right, so the first thing we want to talk about is kind of something that we avoided in the previous podcast because we wanted to go in depth in it here is the Trelfamadorians' view on war. And, you know, they've got a lot of views on a lot of societal things. And one of them is, one of the most shocking, we think, is the war. Is there, like, kind of viewpoint on war and, and what angle they take on it? Because I think Vonnegut was trying to make a statement through these fictional characters and what they thought and what people would think they would think. But Billy actually praises the Trelfmanorians for, like, their peacefulness because whenever he's abducted, I feel like he's coming in and he's, like, he, he doesn't really want to be abducted or maybe he does, but he still appreciates the what he thinks is, is the serenity on their planet. I think for him, it's just like a big contrast to what he's used to on Earth and like seeing how the Chaffamadorians like act and their peacefulness mm-hmm. is just way different than like everything he's experienced in the war. Right. They know like all of time and they can change it, but they won't because they feel that this is the way it should go. And mm-hmm. they like they don't even avoid the wars because they know how um like how cemented those events are that they have to occur that they always will occur no matter what yeah one thing about the uh Chaffmadorians though like when Billy explains to them that he's like praising their peacefulness they explain that for them like they had wars before and it, it wasn't always peaceful like that which I thought was pretty interesting yeah I mean but when Billy got abducted first he came in and he didn't know anything about Trailfamador because, like, they kind of talked to him as he was in the, their whatever spaceship thing. But he kind of just automatically assumed that it was peaceful. I think just because everyone's conception of maybe a different planet is, especially an ex-vet or a veteran who went through all that, that tragedy. He's probably coming in trying to, like, he wants it to be, like, a perfect, a perfect like, place and, and mm-hmm. serene. Yeah, I think that made it even more interesting when they tell him that they did have wars because it's like showing that all throughout time, these things always occur, no matter what. I also feel like the uh, Chaffmadorians kind of 
calm and ease Billy down by like explaining to him uh, things about like time and death, and it kind of makes sense to Billy. When they say when they talk about time and how everything how they don't change anything because nothing is ever gone. You could just go it's like they always say looking at a at a mountain range. You could just go to a certain point and they'll be there. But I find it kind of weird that they don't try to avoid wars. They know how the universe ends, which is them making mm-hmm. testing some bomb and blowing it up and they still just accept it. And they're they're like that's literally the epitome of what Billy Billy sorry, Billy thinks because he's like He's always sitting there like, so it goes, like, okay, it happened, you know, it, it's going to, there's nothing to stop it. And it's this really just kind of, I mean, in his own mind, since he kind of made these people up, that's why everything's centered around his beliefs, but still. Right. And then I think at one point they, um, they tell him, yeah, the wars happen, but we move on. We just live. Isn't this moment right now? Isn't it beautiful? You just, you got to live right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, we actually got a quote right there, and oh, yeah, they yeah. say, quote, On other days, we have wars as horrible as any you've ever seen or heard about. There isn't anything we can do about them, so we simply don't look at them. We ignore them. We spend eternity looking at pleasant moments, end quote. So, like, they is it okay to just look away from things like that and ignore it? Like, he's telling Billy to just be like, oh, yeah, wars happen, but just don't look at them. You know, they're, they're the bad parts. Just ignore them. There's nothing that you could do. So he even says that that the human race would be better off if they did move on and forget about wars. But I don't know if that really would. I think it would just promote more wars because you don't remember the devastation or the the cost exactly. of wars. Yeah, they they like. It's interesting that Vonnegut's saying this, like even bringing these ideas up, because this is as we talked about an anti-war book, and. But then again, this kind of brings us back to the first chapter where Vonnegut admitted that that wars are as inevitable as glaciers. And now he's saying, let's, or he's suggesting that people should just not focus on them. Or maybe he's not suggesting that. Maybe that's just a contrasting view that he wants to present and maybe disprove later. But that's what it seems like right now. It kind of plays into um, like the idea of like fate and everything, how wars are kind of like destined to happen mm-hmm. and the Chalfmadorians they kind of just they kind of like know what's going to happen so they just like take it as it is maybe he's trying to show like um people that argue with him like why would you write an anti-war book if the wars are just going to happen anyways maybe he's trying to show mm-hmm. that if if we just forget about wars more will happen like I said earlier but if we mm-hmm. kind of we try to prevent them less will less will occur and they won't be as deadly we'll be able to prevent much more and save more lives it we can't save yeah, everybody yeah. but there's some there's another interesting quote in this like little section where they're actually talking about this war the wars and things uh one of the trout Midorians says that's one thing earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. So this is obviously something we already said, but I find Billy's response very strange and interesting. He literally just says, um, U-M, <laughs> and nothing else. The, the conversation ends. So, like, what is he getting out of that? What is, is, is he just confused, or does he, like, disagree with it or something? Or I think he's just kind of, like, 
unsure about like everything all the information the Chalcedonians like presented to him mm -hmm. earlier on um he's actually in the real world but you know how he always kind of incorporates his Chalcedonian experiences or whatever just like kind of goes in and out Vonnegut of where he is at in time but Vonnegut's actually during when they're in the prisoner of war camp in uh Germany before Dresden uh, Billy's actually talking about the wars, and he talked about how Trafmadorians would just refer to war as bad weather. And he said, here's a quote, he said, quote, Derby described the incredible artificial weather that earthlings sometimes create for other earthlings when they don't want those other earthlings to inhabit earth anymore. So he's literally calling war just, just as passing by, you know, as weather is. And they're just, it's artificial, like, I, I I was a little confused by that, but it kind of makes sense when you look at it from the whatever trail from a Dorian perspective, I guess. Yeah, they really aren't really alarmed by the wars at all. They kind of see it as just like another thing happening that they shouldn't mm -hmm. really care for that much. I kind of disagree with you guys on that a little bit on that aspect because I think they might mm -hmm. be saying like when a hurricane comes in or like a tsunami. Um, it kills people and it takes people away from their homes. So maybe he's just making this comparison rather than saying, oh, it just happens. It's just weather. I think it's more of a yeah, comparison. But, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, but when you look back at tsunamis, you don't go, oh, what could we have done to stop that? So it's almost like weather is inevitable. War is inevitable. It's just a common theme throughout this whole book, even though he's an anti-war uh, kind of writer, which is just confusing and interesting to think about and what, what that means in really context to the whole book. Um, but what do you guys, do you think that Trout Minorian commentary on war, like, is any different than what he tries to portray through other characters? Is he purposely just putting in some random outlandish ideas or? I think he's still getting the same message out through the Chalfmadorians or through other characters in the book. He just does it with, like, in a more interesting way with the Chalfmadorians. Mm -hmm. And more, definitely more direct, too, mm -hmm. because they don't actually have to, uh, he doesn't have to use literary devices like his character and stuff like that. So stay tuned because this next section we will be interviewing Mrs. Early about Billy and his relation to the renowned book Don Quixote from the 17th century. our interview we have miss early on the line with us thank you for coming on she's uh she loves don quixote yes a big expert on the book <laughs> yes so, it's my pleasure to be here and i do very much enjoy sharing don quixote with my students each uh junior year uh i guess to start out uh would you be willing to tell us how you kind of first got introduced to the book or started reading it? Yes, that's a good question. Um, when I was in college, my major was 
the late Spanish language. So um, some of the requirement beyond just conversation and grammar was to obviously read literature, uh, poetry and things like that. So we did spend, I had a teacher who was from Spain. So she had a big passion about Don Quixote and we spent a whole semester just on that book, uh, pulling it apart, uh, discussing all different themes and characters, relevance of the book. Um, and so it was something that's always stuck with me. Obviously at St. Rita, it's not something that we can spend that much time toward, but we've adapted it. So at mm -hmm. least I feel like my students, when they graduate, they, they're aware of the book, aware of uh, Don Quixote, and maybe, who knows, someday you'll have that opportunity like I did to read it and go further into it. All right. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned themes, like that's kind of the big relation here between what we found in Slaughterhouse-Five and Don Quixote, the theme of fantasy, which we talked a lot yes. about in class. Um, so could you kind of guide us through how Don Quixote kind of went insane and, and grasped onto fantasy so much? Yes. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of contrasting themes. So um, one of them was reality and fantasy, which, I, as you said, is one of the, the biggest ones. Um, mm -hmm. And basically, um, you know, I think this is an enchanting book because it takes place in the early 1600s. So, you know, we spend time just talking about the historical perspective of it. So uh, this was a form of entertainment back then um, in which we read about this old man who becomes literally insane and goes crazy because he reads so many books and he's so enchanted with the whole idea of um, chivalry and he reads so many of those novels mm -hmm. that he stays mm -hmm. awake at night and it becomes his it becomes his obsession he doesn't he, he stops eating he stops talking to people it becomes his every minute every uh, second and it becomes uh, such a great part of his life that he actually becomes kind of insane and now believes that he is that character so you know um, and he creates this character this Don Quixote de la Mancha which takes place in Spain mm -hmm. and he thinks he now is a knight and he is out um, in La Mancha region of Spain to find different adventures. So he becomes, you know, his reality of reading a book for enjoyment turns into him seeing, uh, turning everyday items into fantasy. Yeah. So that's like, so in uh, Slaughterhouse Five, the main character, his name is Billy and he actually had some mental trauma, so he's got actual reason to kind of go insane. But he was also surrounded by okay. books and science oh, fiction. Wow. And he actually, yeah, he, he just gained full-fledged <laughs> belief in these aliens and that he got abducted once and that he was in, like, their planet and things okay. like that. And um, he's also got a lot of people around him, just like Don Quixote did, as his, like, sidemen, wow. like Sancho. And, I mean, yeah, yeah so uh, Sancho more... It was more his niece, more Don Quixote's niece than anything, because, you know, Sancho was more of a partner in crime. <laughs> he kind of did everything with Don Quixote. But this this guy's friend just gives him the books and and just kind of feeds his okay. imagination. But do you think you could tell us a little bit about uh, Don Quixote's niece and yes. her role? In the so, book? yes. Um married uh you know so he had a niece that lived with him and you know along with other friends which was the priest and the barber you know they they started to see him literally become insane he lost his mind 
and um, she became obviously concerned as this is her uncle. And um, if they crafted the idea of, okay, you know what we're going to do, we're going to burn all these books because uh, that's what's making him delirious and bring him back to reality. So again, we're swinging between the fantasy reality theme. Um, and so she was the one who kind of tried to anchor him down and bring him back to reality and tell him, uncle, you know, these are things that are just fictitious and, you know, it's taking over your mind. Um, and so she, mm -hmm. she had that role of trying to bring him back to reality along with the priest and stuff. And that's why they burned his books. But in the end, burning the books, mm -hmm. he was beyond that. The, the, he had memorized every adventure, everything. Um, so even without his books, he still could, uh, perceive, you know, all these different, he could still see all these different adventures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, um, I think. Billy's daughter is very similar to what you just said about um, uh, Don Quixote's niece mm -hmm. because she's constantly yelling at him and trying to get him to stop yes. writing these articles to the newspaper about his experience with the aliens. <laughs> we know he kind of just got that off his science fiction books and yes. like until he had the mental trauma. Okay, but like she tries to get him back, but like you said about Don Quixote, how he was so much submerged in that idea it's similar to the way billy mm -hmm. is yes and we don't know if we can ever get him back from yes believing that he actually went that's there. pretty cool that you guys have made this correlation again i have not read the book but um the book that you're t detailing here but uh, to me you're right i think that you are making a lot of logical uh connections between the two uh so one thing i wanted to ask uh, miss early was uh after reading the book i was kind of curious about Don Quixote's like imagination, imagination and craziness. And I was wondering, do you think Don Quixote was crazy for setting off on those adventures? Brandon, I'm so glad you asked that question because for me, <laughs> the reason why I'm such a cheerleader of this whole thing, besides pulling it apart and looking at all the themes, is what really resonates with me about uh, our friend Don Quixote and his, and his sidekick Sancho is yes he went mad and he thought that windmills were giants and he saw simple little hotel inns were castles and you know i what i really loved about that is that his authenticity came through and it's not it's not you know mm -hmm. every day that you know we can live out our true dreams and our true um visions and and he did so don quixote really believed in himself he really believed his horse rosinante was this strong fierce horse and he felt that he could just conquer and liberate different people and so you know that's why i really like it because it shows that it's in the song that has come as a result of that novel is called you know to dream the impossible dream so it that's just it is that he dreamt all these crazy things and he lived to the fullest he actually lived out you know he was able to uh enjoy these fantasies that he had and he really believed who he was so that's the reason why i like it because of the authenticity of the character of don quixote mm -hmm. yeah one of the uh one of the things in in slaughterhouse five is billy is he's like he's in these mental hospitals for these like imaginations mm -hmm. and things like that and you kind of get a sense of yes. pity for him so i guess my final okay. question for you would just be would you did you pity don quixote at all and is like the, his delusional mindset acceptable in like a society kind of thing or 
Is it is it right to try to set in him right? The, in today's society or for the time period when he lived? Yeah. Yeah, well, even then, would, would it, was it more, was it better yeah. for him to just, like, go fix it? Or is it okay if you just kind of um, straight off? Well, as we learned in the novel, sometimes, you know, he would get himself in trouble and or he would, uh, you know, cause damage to other people's property. You know, so the, that's a hard question to answer. I would say yes and no. I would say... Um, I would like him. I'm glad that he lived out his dreams and that he he saw windmills as giants and he was able to conquer them. And he was never he never got fully physically injured. So, you know, the part that would be no, like the niece was then when they're concerned that he wasn't eating and he was, you know, staying out in, mm -hmm. the, in the woods and, um, you know, he um, could put himself and others in danger. So when that became a factor, yes, I think it's right to kind of get him back home and um, set things straight. But um, I really enjoy the part where he, without harming himself or others, there were some adventures when it was just purely innocent when he went into the inn and he saw that this guy, the innkeeper was the king and the inn was a castle and he became a knight. You know, they placated the whole situation for him because they saw that he was crazy. So I thought mm -hmm. that was good that the, in that example, that the innkeeper went ahead and pretended to make him a knight uh, because, you know, Don Quixote thought he was a king. But then the times when he would fight and, and he slaughtered a bunch of sheep that he thought was an army coming toward them and, you know, you know, so there's mm -hmm. times when I'm like, yeah, it kind of got too far and he or others could get injured. Um, but other times when um, it was innocent and it, it brings a little bit of entertainment. So I, I guess both. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. It does. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. For sure. And I think that's something that we're going to have to watch out for in Slidehouse. Okay. See how they help him or if they don't. Yes. Yes, that's mm -hmm. yeah, that would be very interesting. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the parallel that you're bringing between these two books. And look, I mean, Don Quixote was written in the early 1600s, so as we talked about in class, it's one of the mm -hmm. most widely uh texts that's been translated. And here we are, hundreds mm -hmm. of years later, still talking about it, and still there is some enjoyment in the book. Um, so I hope that you know that happens when you read this Slaughterhouse Five as well to see how that how that all works out. Got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, you just remember what your past said. For you got a friend in me. So, one of the things we encounter uh, in the reading that we just read was the Englishman and the relationship um, with other POWs, especially the Americans in the war? We, we found, uh, I mean, it was kind of interesting how they were trying to be friends with the Americans, even though they were literally in this like dire situation. It's, I mean, yes, they weren't, but you'd think of it, a prisoner of war camp in Germany, like that's not the most prime place to try to be making bonds, singing songs, making for others, like, I don't know. I happen to disagree with that statement. <laughs> Go I, ahead. Um, Let's hear it. The way I see it would be if you're in a prison war camp, you'd have to band together so that you could have this camaraderie 
and this kind of like friendship, like you guys were saying, so that you can stay mentally strong. You know, if everybody's going to isolate okay. and they're fighting against their own prisoners, the guys that are in the same situation as them, then you're not going to have, you're probably going to struggle mentally and you might go insane. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that it definitely makes sense. Uh, then I feel like they were justified in doing it and in, in reaching out and being so friendly, but it was weird how the Americans did not reciprocate this friendliness, this, yeah. this want to be, mm-hmm. you know, like accepted at all. Like they did not care. Mm-hmm. Like they commonly say throughout the text that the Americans are, they, there's actually a quote that says there is, there will be no cohesion between the individuals like this kind of bonding and friendship mm-hmm. and they despised any leader from among their own and refused to follow or even listen to them like they they didn't want the camaraderie at all uh, yeah going interesting like you said going back to really what the whole idea of a, of american soldier is like from our first podcast you'd think they're very receptive to others you know like mm-hmm. they're really bond together they they do these hoorah chants or whatever yeah, patriotism exactly. So they they're like they're kind of bonded through that, but they seem so despondent in in how the Englishmen describe them or how Vonnegut describes them, which they are really when you're comparing them to the Englishmen. Yeah, adding on to you, um, earlier you said uh, how that Americans didn't really reciprocate anything back to the um, Englishmen. I totally agree with that. The Englishmen were um, they were like singing, they were like preparing food and everything, and the Americans were just taking it in and not really giving anything back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they, they did not have to be as generous as they were. They talked about how there was a clerical error in the early in the war. And it says, quote, when food was still getting through to prisoners, uh, the Red Cross shipped them 500 parcels every month instead of 50, end quote. So that's like, they had so much, I guess, but they still could have saved it for themselves. There's nothing pushing them to unless we're going from Gleason's standpoint of actually, you know, maintaining mental strength, but they didn't have to do that. They had each other, but they still reached out and the Americans just, just did not care enough or really want to have anything to do with them. That kind of makes me wonder, like, what do you guys think? Like, why do you, why were they so happy to see like the Americans in the camp? Are they so like welcoming to them? I think just because they were new guys, you know, it's like um, they had just been alone, all these Englishmen together for, they said, since the beginning of the war in 1941. Mm-hmm. So these guys, it's a little exciting to get new friends coming in. I mean, maybe they're going to be mean, maybe they're going to be nice guys, but either way, it's some, a new experience. And when you're sitting in a prison, really anything is going to be fun, at, at least at first. And then as we start to go throughout, what happens when Billy's there, things start to change. But at first, yeah, I think they were very happy about it. Yeah, and especially because obviously American soldiers in Germany, they're another pe- group of people that they could actually communicate with, speak English with. And they ha- obviously they did talk about how they hadn't seen women or children. I know none of them were, but they haven't seen women, women and children since for years. So as Gleason said, anything was good enough for them, anything that that really provided any sort of new, I guess, activity to do. So, but I, I still found it weird how, how they like did a Cinderella play and how, 
how that atmosphere must have been when only Billy, who was like delusional, was dying laughing and no one else was giving anything. Like they were they were just sitting there staring at him while they were trying so hard to establish something. I think also too the fact that it's a Cinderella play. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And there's only guys there. That's true. It's true. But it's not it's not only like these people were just trying to have friends, but they were already like right away looking out for them. Besides the giving cigars, cigarettes, chocolates, like when they had to leave to for Dresden and how they started giving tips that once again Americans did not care for at all because they're on their own. They could do their own thing. But like it was it was just weird and interesting, I think, how how much they cared for them, even though they were with them for such a short period of time. Yeah, it was, it was like uh, when with Billy's coat, like they kind of explained that, uh, like it was given mm-hmm. to him, like as an insult. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting. Yeah, like they were they were like jeering him, but they had, at the same time they were like yeah. down to earth, helping him out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But why would why would Vonnegut paint such a good picture of foreign soldiers? Is it because he wanted to contrast how how childish the Americans were? Or? I think it goes back to what we talked about in the first podcast with him saying he he wants to contrast the things that mm. um, the American public views as like the strong Americans come and save the war and they mm-hmm. saved everybody and America's the best, but he's trying to combat what Americans think so that we're not always promoting this war and patriotism and forced power over other people. Yeah, 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 we often see like outsiders as like almost as enemies, but like mm-hmm. here they're depicted as like friendly other human beings that we can like interact with. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and one of the uh, I remember one of the Americans tried to steal like cigarettes from an Englishman. The Englishman proceeded to snap his arm in half. Yet he still went and cared for him. He was like making mm-hmm. sure like oh if I. And then he kind of started jeering him, like, if I hadn't known, if I had known you were so weak, I wouldn't have gone that hard. He was telling his actual captain that. So, like, that, they were really just going in on how skinny the Americans were and how, like, contrary, because they expected probably very good soldiers, too. It's also kind of ironic because these guys were captured at the beginning of the war. So how strong could they really be if you're looking at it from, like, a, a militaristic viewpoint? Yeah. But that's just something. Maybe he wanted to do that little joke. Yeah, it may have felt like bad for them because the Americans didn't really have the supplies and everything, but the Englishmen had all these supplies coming in from the Red Cross and had like a surplus of it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and and they were somehow able to maintain their like daily rituals, like how the dude was talking about shaving, whether like whether it be shaving or working out in the morning. Like he was really trying to instill in them just a sense of you know, you're still human. Like, even though all you've been through, you still have to care for yourself. But they just did not care.
Thank you for joining us on this adventure and thought on extraterrestrial beings, fantasy, and camaraderie. We hope you enjoyed the guest interview by Mrs. Early, who we graciously thank for taking the time out of her day to talk with us. If you haven't already, follow us on Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you're listening on so you won't miss a future episode. While you're here, I invite you to help fund my Kickstarter, Boudet's Bidets. Link is on our website. Have a great week.